0: Hello, thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Kira, And I'm Robin.
1: Welcome to Food of the Future, a podcast about alternative protein sources made by five honors students of Wageningen University and Research.
0: So in this episode, we are going to cover a very broad category of novel foods, edible microbes. To begin with, We are going to present some background on this topic and later on, we'll have an interview with an expert of edible microbes, researcher at the Swedish university for agricultural science, Thomas Linder. So Robin, what exactly are edible microbes? That's a good question. Microbes are an incredibly diverse range of organisms that are microscopically
1: small. You wouldn't be able to see one individual microbe with the naked eye, but they often proliferate and grow very quickly. Because of this, The colonies or populations of microbes become visible after a while, and you can see them. An example of this would be mold, which everyone is probably very well aware of. But this is, of course, a case where the organisms are bad for food. There are many different types of microbes, from fungi to yeast to bacteria. We've probably all heard of bacteria before, but they are often painted in a bad light. Although some bacteria can cause disease, this is actually less than 1% of the total biodiversity in bacteria. Many bacteria are even beneficial to us. Some help digest food in your gut, thereby providing the body with necessary vitamins. Others help give yogurt and other fermented foods their signature taste and texture. However, bacteria can also be grown for their biomass, which can act as an alternative to conventional food sources. This is also the case for yeast. Yeast is often used in the process of making bread and beer, but it can also be used as biomass to be food itself.
0: And how will edible microbes be grown?
1: Microbes are generally grown in bioreactors, which are closed off systems where you can regulate all the conditions necessary for optimal growth of the organisms inside. Each type and strain of organism will have different requirements to be able to grow well. So these bioreactors are a really versatile and controlled option, which can be adapted to what is needed for each different strain.
0: And can you explain to us why would someone choose edible microbes over other food sources? Yes, definitely. Firstly, microbes need
1: much less land to grow on than conventional food sources. A big problem at the moment is the deforestation of tropical rainforests for soy production. And this would not be necessary with microbes. We found a study in 2019 that showed that to produce the same amount of microbial biomass as soybean biomass, only 0.06% of the combined landmass was needed. There are, of course, more requirements than just space to grow microbes. The facilities and bioreactors that these organisms are grown in need energy. This, of course, needs to be harvested sustainably for the process to be sustainable. But this calculation that we just told you shows that it is really beneficial to start looking into bacteria as food. Secondly, many bacteria actually use CO2 as a source of energy and carbon, the same way we use carbohydrates. CO2 is one of the main problems in global warming, so retrieving this from the air is a very good thing. Because of this, Microbial facilities may even have a carbon-negative footprint if the energy that is used to grow the biomass is retrieved sustainably.
0: And how will edible microbes actually feed us? Good question.
1: In general, microbial biomass or microbial protein could have a protein content of up to 75% of dry biomass. Compare this to meat, which has a protein content of about 30% at best, and this looks really promising. However, as it often is, this is not the full picture. Although protein content is important, the protein profile is maybe even more important. Proteins consist of building blocks called amino acids. Some of these building blocks we can produce in our body ourselves, but others we need to get from our food. These are called essential amino acids, and it's just very important that we get these from our food. It really depends on the type of microbial biomass whether these essential amino acids are present in high enough amounts. but. They are often present. What will probably be the case is that a combination of different types of microbes, from bacteria to yeast, is needed to constitute a complete amino acid profile.
0: That actually sounds very interesting. And what are some of the different sources of microbial biomass?
1: There are many, many different types, each with their respective pros and cons in terms of food. I'll just touch on a few. Hydrogen oxidizing bacteria, for example, need hydrogen and oxygen sources to grow and produce biomass. The benefit of this is that the production can be decoupled from fossil fuels and that it is a CO2 sink. Additionally, their amino acid profile is very similar to that of high quality meat instead of vegetable proteins, which is normally what um, microbial biomass is similar to. This means that it consists of quite a wide variety of amino acids, Although hydrolyzing bacteria still have a long way to go before we see them on the shelves, it's a very promising technique. Another type of microbial protein comes from methanotropic bacteria, which use methane as a source of energy and carbon. These bacteria have been around since the 1970s for animal feed. So the uh, scale-up of the industrial production of these bacteria has been figured out for quite some time. Methane, just like CO2, contributes a lot to climate change. Because of this, trapping methane and using it to grow bacteria is actually very sustainable. Microbial protein from these bacteria contains all of the essential amino acids, and you could actually compare it to fish in terms of nutritional value. Lastly, yeast is also a great source of microbial biomass. Yeast can be grown at a variety of different temperatures and pH values, which makes it a very versatile option. Yeast can also be grown from specific waste streams, making it possibly a super sustainable option. Many waste streams contain the sugars necessary to grow yeast, but the composition of the substrate used to grow the yeast cells, as with all microbes, is extremely important to ensure an efficient production process. After the production, some treatments often need to be performed to retrieve the protein from the yeast cells. Yeast cells are often low in fat, high in carbohydrates, and they could even contain some trace elements that are essential for human life.
0: Having all this information, what are the predictions for food products consisting of microbial biomass?
1: That really depends on a few factors. Firstly, microbial biomass is still a novel food, and it has not yet been approved for use. The novel food legislation in the EU describes the various situations of food resulting from production process and different food sources which were not produced or used before 1997 to place such foods on the market, an application must be submitted. The process of getting such an application approved is often a very arduous process. Secondly, extensive testing is needed to ensure the safety of this product. Some bacteria carry toxic compounds called endotoxins. These toxins are normally contained inside the wall of the bacteria, so they won't harm us. But When the bacteria are digested, they are released into the environment, our body. This would, of course, be very dangerous. So testing needs to make sure that the right bacterial species are selected to consume. Other microbes, like yeast, don't have these toxins. So these would probably be easier to produce. Lastly, as I briefly touched on earlier, there's a big variety in how far the production scale of process is for different microbes. Methanotropic bacteria have been produced for animal feed for quite a while. So the production process for that is quite solid. Other microbes are not that far yet,
0: so more time is needed. And lastly, can microbes be used in any
1: other way to produce food? Yes, totally. Instead of the microbes themselves being the biomass, which is what we just talked about for the whole episode, they can also be used as little factories, so the microbes themselves become bioreactors. For example, microbes could be used to grow vitamins, which can then be used to supplement other foods that normally aren't as nutritious. As of now, these vitamins are produced in very expensive reactions, often with harmful rest products, in laboratories. The microbes could be used to produce the necessary vitamins biologically and more sustainably. At the moment, the main issue with this is that the process to isolate the vitamins from the rest of the biomass is quite extensive and expensive. So more research is needed to make this process a more viable option.
0: Since we know that there are still some problems with this type of food, Let's ask our expert how the research on edible microbes is going. So, welcome,
1: Thomas, to our podcast. Uh, I just want to start with asking you a little bit about who you are and how your work relates to the topic of edible microbes or edible microorganisms.
2: Yeah, so I'm... um i'm an associate professor of microbiology at the swedish university of agricultural sciences in um, Uppsala, which is just north of stockholm um i i've been studying yeast for many years i specialize in studying how basically the eating habits of yeast cells so how they get their nutrients and some years ago i realized that uh because of my knowledge of this i could start seeing ways of how we could produce food in a completely different way how we could bypass basically the way we've been producing food for the last 10000 years
1: yeah i mean that's basically what this whole podcast is about finding alternative ways to get our nutrients and then specifically protein so i think you fit very well within our topic um many people already know about microbes in food in terms of yogurts and bread and wine but the way you research them is quite different okay tell us a bit about um how that is different from the traditional ways of using microbes
2: yeah so when we when we like eat yogurt or something like that what we're eating is is a fermented food stuff so it's basically some kind of food item it's milk or something and then there's some microbes in there that will change it and hopefully give it more desirable properties but when it comes to edible microbes there is nothing else except the microbes you're just eating the microorganisms and another difference is when you when you have some yogurt or other fermented food stuff the, the the microbes are usually still alive but when if you want to eat microbes as food that doesn't really work so basically you take take all the cells and you you crush them and break them up and it just becomes basically uh, uh like a, like a mush of, of bacterial biomass or or whatever microbial biomass you're dealing with so that that's the main difference between a fermented food stuff and, and actually edible microbes
1: yeah so you said that eating alive bacteria doesn't really work if you don't Stomach, why is that
2: well so i can see two problems one is that uh microbes have very tough cell walls that we might actually we our digestive system might actually not be able to break them up and i mean that's a good thing because we have trillions of cells bacterial cells in our guts and they they need to stay alive and do the stuff they do uh, but if we want to eat microorganisms as food then we have to break those cell walls to, to so we can access the nutrients inside.
1: Yeah, so the bioavailability of the nutrients inside is very low.
2: Absolutely, and then another problem is that if you have intact cells, you might also get some kind of immune response. That's that's possible.
1: Yeah. That so you might,
2: might wanna separate the different components. You might want to get at the protein specifically. Yeah. For example.
1: Yeah, so these microbes are grown and then digested to make the eventual food product. Can you tell us a bit about how this production process works and what the different steps are? You already mentioned that it's uh, degraded, but maybe a bit more specifically. So
2: so it it, it depends a bit about what, what it is you're growing and what you're feeding them. Uh, but basically what it is, is you have a huge tank full of some kind of nutrient-rich liquid, and then you let the microorganisms divide and grow there. And then um, you have to harvest them somehow so you have to get separate the the cells from the liquid media around them and then you need to process this biomass so for one thing one thing that's that's um that is different with microorganisms is uh compared to other foods we eat is they have a quite a high um amount of RNA in them and we can't eat uh, a lot of RNA uh we will um basically what happens is that the RNA will turn into something called uric acid in our bloodstream and it will form crystals insoluble crystals and that can damage our kidneys and and um basically give us gout and sort of inflammation of our of our joints so you have to you have first you have to usually what they do is they heat treat them so that the the RNA will leak out of the cells and you just simply wash the biomass And then it kind of depends on if you if you just want like everything, or if you want a specific part of the biomass. If you want you want the protein specifically, or do you want the lipid specifically, or if you just take everything at once? So it it kind of depends a bit. And then, um, well, sometimes people dry it, or or they use it like kind of a like a a um, sort of a a wet, uh, slightly moist mass and then depending on again what it is like for instance when you make microprotein you want to treat it in a special way so it gets the right texture so so you get this you know so it's because it's a meat imitation product but in other cases maybe all you want is a protein powder and then it doesn't really matter that much so so it depends a bit
1: yeah that makes sense and you said there's a lot of nutrients involved that helps uh, the microbes grow um does that also mean because many microbes use co2 to grow that this technique is quite sustainable
2: Yeah, that is exactly like so basically what it is you grow them on depends on how sustainable it is so if you grow them on carbon dioxide directly or if you take the carbon dioxide and you convert it chemically to something they can grow on that would also be really good because then you you bypass photosynthesis and and you can you can produce food without using any arable land at all and then on the like the other end of the spectrum the worst thing you can do is use microorganisms that for instance you can grow on natural gas so you're basically having fossil fuel um you you feed fossil fuels to to microorganisms and that's of course is just as bad as burning them as fueled
1: yeah so you can basically decide for yourself which nutrients you want to use and how sustainable that makes your end product.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you also said that uh, it really depends on what end product you want, which part of the uh, microbial biomass you um, separate. Does that also mean that you can um, alter which parts you want the bacteria or the yeast to grow the most? So you can genetically modify them to make more protein or more lipids?
2: Oh, absolutely! I mean, then it gets really interesting. I mean, if if people if people are willing to to eat genetically modified organisms, then it gets very very interesting. Uh, One thing you can do is you can start tweaking the amino acid profile of proteins, so you can enrich the proteins for essential amino acids, which means that you you don't need to eat as much protein to get basically all the nutrients you need. And with fats, you can start putting in essential uh fatty acids that weren't there before you can put in vitamins you can put in antioxidants you can do a lot of really interesting things if people are ready to literally swallow genetically modified microorganisms then then it gets really interesting
1: yeah that's of course as of now a really big if people are not mostly willing to eat it but there's a lot of uh, potential there
2: yeah but you could what you could do is you could feed it to animals instead you can make a, a really efficient animal feed. Um, so that that's that's another take. If if people aren't ready to eat it, then you can feed it to animals instead.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um there are many different types of edible microorganisms. We talked about bacteria, about yeast, fungi. Which do you think are the most promising for human feed as of now?
2: I actually think it's good to have a variety. I, I think they they all kind of have their their pros and cons. Um so bacteria for instance have uh usually have higher protein per per dry cell weights. Um but of course bacteria come with these little, little weird cell components that might cause immune issues if you have you know slight like trace levels of it in the protein. Um yeast is is good because there's nothing like yeast doesn't really produce anything toxic um so um so yeast is good that way um filamentous fungi are are good as well i mean there you always have to watch out for for mycotoxins so they don't start producing things like that but for instance so microprotein comes from a filamentous fungus and and i mean that is a well established product now for basically 40 years so so it's it's um yeah no and I, I think it's good to have a diversity because you you just like in regular agriculture you want to avoid a monoculture because these these uh, organisms they can get sick as well bacteria can get virus infections and and that can completely wipe out an entire factory if, if that happens so it's good to have not to depend on just one organism
1: yeah and you already touched on it a little bit, uh, on the presence of exotoxins and, mycotox- and microtoxins. Um, that's, of course, a really big issue because then you would literally, yeah, you get uh, the food you would eat would be toxic. What are some ways that the safety of the food could be ensured? So what are some uh, ways that these exotoxins can be prevented?
2: Um, so again, if if we're allowed to do genetic modification, then we just remove the gene so they can't produce it anymore that that of course would be the ideal thing um i i I would have a hard time seeing anyone allowing us to to eat bacteria that produce exotoxins but then there's something called endotoxins which are which are lipids in the the membrane which are a bit trickier you can't just remove those Uh, and there i think basically what you have to do is just have very strict production guidelines with screening of the product to make sure it's not contaminated um but I it might be there there might be difficult to avoid so that that would be one drawback with using bacteria for instance but with with um with filamentous fungi when when you make microprotein you know they have very well established protocols for checking that there is no mycotoxin contamination there so it that's that's all established basically
1: yeah and like you said, yeast doesn't have this problem, so it's not like this whole field is useless because of this one drawback.
2: Exactly, and I work with yeast, so that that's you know that's you know I'm happy that that's the case.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, when we eventually get micro microprotein, microprotein on the market, uh, in which form do you think this will take? Will this be? um like a sort of raw protein powder that will be incorporated in other products or do you think you'll actually see bacterial protein on the box
2: I mean that that's a it's a it's a tough question um if, if you look at the two products we already have which is microprotein like basically corn corn's microprotein and then I don't know if you can you can get it in in the Netherlands but then there's Marmite this yeast extract sandwich spread and um both of those products, I mean, Marmite has been around for over a hundred years, and it's never really. People know what it is, but but it's still not something they shout from the rooftops. It's just its own thing. It's just this thing you put on sandwiches, and if you if you look at microprotein, you know the the I find that the company is quite careful saying what it is. They say it's a fungal protein, so people think mushrooms probably but they don't think molds because it is it, that's what it is it's it's a it's a soil mold basically uh so 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 people are quite careful in how they frame it um so the question is then how would people feel about bacterial protein now one hopeful thing is that they've um there's this company called solar foods in finland um who are who are using this um carbon dioxide incorporating bacterium and there seems to be some excitement in Finland about about this because because they are they're quite open about it. They're saying this is it's a bacterium, but we can grow it without soil, you know, in this completely new way. And and there is there seems to be some excitement about it. But I think um, Solar Foods have said they're going to use it as a, as a protein fortification to basically put it in other products. Then you have companies like Air Protein in the U.S they're more going for a meat imitation product so they're going to take the protein and, and try to make it into something that looks like meat
1: so both options are quite viable and it really depends on sort of the consumer perspective which eventually uh, wins out
2: yeah i i would say so and and um I mean it's it's kind of hard. I mean if you think about it, I don't I can't think of a single food product that's completely taken over once it's been introduced. You know, it gets its own little niche and some people eat it. So I don't unless unless we have a complete collapse of agricultural production all over the world, I think it's it's going to stay in a little corner of the supermarket for the time being and then we'll see. I think the biggest impact it can have is actually as animal feed rather than food for humans. Yeah.
1: Is that also what your research is focused on then more on the animal side of it or more in general?
2: Well, so because I'm at an agricultural university, we we try to to twist it that way. So I I collaborate with a lot of people who who uh work on ag- aquaculture, so fish feed basically. Um but I I I don't really have because I work with yeasts, I think it could go either way. It could be for animals and it could be for humans. So it's and because because, you know again because we have marmite as a a shining example of of a a food product made from microorganisms that's actually a cultural icon in in the uk um you know it's i think yeast is quite thankful for to work with in, in a sense of wanting to develop something from yeast i think
1: and how do you then make sure in your research that both sides both the human food and the animal feed are covered i guess how How do you diversify your research in that way is that difficult
2: for me no i mean i just i just produce the the yeast and then it's up to the 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 other people what they do with it if they give it to people or, or animals um so so for me it doesn't really make a difference
1: and so you say you produce yeast does that mean that it's yeast um so what what does that entail exactly
2: well so basically what it means is that that we grow like big uh, amounts of yeast and then um basically dry it and and process it into a powder and then it can be either incorporated into some kind of feed which is what we've been doing so far i i so far i'm not working with any any development of any food products for for human consumption as of as of yet
1: and that dried powder that, that is produced as your end product is then from the entire biomass it's not uh, separated yes, into different parts.
2: Uh, yeah. In this case, it's just the entire thing. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, well, I think this is a really interesting field, and it's really uh, there's some big potential in there. There's also some drawbacks, of course. But um, we ask all our guests one question at the end, which is um, related to the the name and the topic of our podcast, which is Food of the Future so when you think of food of the future what would that look like to you and how would that uh, yeah what would that entail
2: well it depends on how far in the future um i think in the next 30 years again unless there is some kind of agricultural collapse i think food will continue to look much the same um but who knows i mean it's 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 kind of hard to say really um I, I'd say it's almost impossible to predict. Um, I think for, you know, if we, if we ever make it out into space, then I think it's definitely, I think the microbes really have an edge there. I, I always laugh when I see these uh, drawings where there is, or movies, science fiction movies where there's a greenhouse in the spaceship, because I can't think of a dumber way to produce food in space than to have a, some kind of greenhouse so basically if if, it, if we if we go out into space then it will definitely be edible microbes
1: and why exactly would microbes get an edge there
2: well because you can produ- because it's so dense you can produce so much uh food in such a little volume basically um and it, it's very simple it's it's just very inefficient to to have um you know first you have to get some kind of electrical power, you have to get them into LED lights, and then the plants have to take up that light and you have efficiency losses at every step. And it's just, and the plants can get sick and you know, there's all these kinds of things that can happen. And you need some kind of soil, some kind of something to grow them in. And with microorganisms, it's just, it's so simple. You just have one tank and you have the same nutrients every time and it always works the same way
1: yeah that makes sense so if we would be microorganisms then we would hope for a for a bigger space race
2: if you want to be eaten yes
1: <laughs> yeah okay that makes sense as a microorganism you probably wouldn't want to be
2: eaten well you only have a life expectancy of one hour so i mean it you know i don't know if it really matters the, what, it, what the the meaning of life is for a microbe is basically just to divide so i don't know
1: That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your expertise. And I think our listeners learned a lot from you.
2: I hope so. Thank you for having me.
1: In conclusion, microbial biomass could be a good option to help with the increasing need for food, while the area this food could be grown on is decreasing. Microbial biomass often has a high protein content, which is very beneficial. However, The amino acid profile needs to be evaluated to make sure the microbes are a good protein source. Like Thomas explained, microbes could also be used as animal feed, which would in itself decrease the necessity to grow soy as feed. However, there are still some problems with microbial biomass for human food. Safety is sometimes an issue, as it is with every novel food. This might be where different microbial species, like yeast, get to the front line, and win out over others, like bacteria, that might carry endotoxins in them. Additionally, while large-scale production has been achieved for some species, it has not yet been achieved for others. Because of the immensely large variety of microbes, it's really difficult to pinpoint what the possibilities are for the sector as a whole, but there's definitely some promising content in there. Thank you for listening to the Food of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support novel and creative food sources please share it with others thanks again and we'll see you next time